This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, June 5th, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. Government and NGO-driven humanitarian interventions have a poor track record. Christopher J. Coyne, in his new book, Doing Bad by Doing Good, argues that much of the problems associated with these interventions is part of the structure of the incentives involved, and thus it's baked into the cake. We spoke following a forum for the book today. What do you think that people who are involved in NGOs, people who are involved in government-directed aid programs, what do you think they don't understand about markets? The uh, understanding of markets that a lot of people overlook is their ability to effectively allocate resources to those who value them uh, the most. And ultimately, what economic development uh, requires, and by economic development, I mean increase in standards of living, is continually reallocating scarce resources to new and better uses. And both theoretically and empirically, markets are the, the superior mechanism for, for doing this, for allocating these scarce resources in ways that increase standards of living. Now, in places that have been devastated, uh, sometimes for long periods of time, what is the role of markets versus governments and NGOs there? And you know, to the extent that governments are supplanting these other processes, uh, how is that actively damaging? So one of the arguments for state-led humanitarian action is that in many places where there are these humanitarian crises, they're very poor, so they don't have well-developed markets, so they say you can't rely on the market mechanism. And there's two things to, to think about. One is that relying on markets in some cases to get them goods and services is still superior, even if they don't have well-functioning markets at the time. But on top of it, uh, to the extent that they don't have those, those markets, it puts constraints on what either governments or NGOs or NGOs that are aligned with government can accomplish. And, and those constraints are uh, these agencies can increase sh- certain short-term uh, relief efforts, so things like providing water, providing shelter, providing basic health care, uh, but they can't create economic development precisely because there's no markets to do so. At the Cato Book Forum, you mentioned the work of Bill Niskanen and Gordon Tullock in terms of uh, talking about bureaucracy. How have the bureaucracies that are responsible for distributing and sometimes lobbying for aid, how do they frustrate the process of helping those who need it? Well, state-led humanitarian action is dominated by bureaucratic structures, top-down, large-scale bureaucracies. And and this canon and Tullock's work is so important because it sheds light on how these organizations operate. And they, and they made a couple really important points for the context of, of understanding humanitarian action. For instance, Niskanen and Tullock emphasized that uh, bureaus, because they're, they're nonprofit, the way they judge success or failure is by the size of their discretionary budget and by the number of subordinates that are working for them. So what you tend to see in government agencies because of this benchmark of success is a constant expansion in a push for more money, undertaking more activities, and getting more people to work with you um, and for your agency. And and so this is the driving factor behind mission creep, which is a bureau starts out with a, a relatively narrow well-defined goal, and before you know it, their portfolio of activities has expanded to such an extent that they're no longer undertaking um, activities related to their core initial mission. On top of that, the other uh, interesting thing that Niskanen and Tullock emphasized was the idea that precisely because uh, bureaus are driven by budgets, the size of their budget, they have an incentive to spend down money quickly uh, to, to demonstrate to legislators and to the public that they need more money to accomplish their goal. This is problematic because, number one, you get massive waste, which is taxpayer money, but in some instances, holding off from spending money and 
either taking a second look at projects or saying that's not a good investment, I'm going to hold this money back until a good investment comes along, would be the preferable course of action. But what happens because of the incentives that bureaucrats face is they'll tend to spend money now as quickly as they can, even if it is um, on projects that don't generate a good return on investment. And so you have this combined um, outcome of bureaus continually trying to push to expand their, their activities and trying to spend money as quickly as they can in order to secure larger budgets. And the combination is um, hubris in that bureaus take, take on more than they can possibly accomplish and waste. You use a quote from Hillary Clinton that you, th you say sort of, sort of encapsulates part of the problem here, and it's the idea that with enough will, with enough funding, we can get uh, what we want accomplished. There are a lot of parallels here. You talk about mission creep, you talk about this. It sounds a lot like foreign interventions that the U.S. military has gotten involved in as well. You've written about that. What are the strong parallels that you draw out here? Well, as I started looking into this topic of humanitarian action, I was focused mainly on short-term relief efforts, but I quickly, quickly realized that they collapse into longer-term development efforts and military interventions. And what's happened over time is that the U.S. government, for instance, through USAID, has gotten involved giving short-term aid to countries. But then you kind of get stuck in a situation where you say, okay, now what? And so what happened over time was, was people in the aid community said, well, we can't just stop at short-term relief. We have to help them develop. So then it turned into providing development aid as well. Then, especially in, in the post-9-11 world, what happened is um, defense uh, initiatives became the centerpiece of U.S. foreign policy. And then diplomacy and development efforts became subsumed, subsumed by defense and became part of it. Uh, and now they're completely intertwined. The military or defense aspects dominates. So you have aid, both long-term development aid and short-term relief aid. They've become militarized. And what I mean by that is the military is active participants in deciding how the money is allocated. But more importantly, uh, the money is not allocated to those who actually need it the most, but instead based on political objectives dealing with uh, national security and defense issues. You said that the solutions that have been offered for decades, and Bill Easterly has written a lot about this as well, not just failures, but also the actively damaging uh, process of a lot of aid and how it gets distributed. What is the answer for these seemingly intractable problems. So the typical solution is to come up with a new and better way of using aid to reform government bureaus and, and spend aid in a smarter, more intelligent manner. In the book, I argue that this is not possible just because it cuts against the fundamental nature of how government bureaus and government agencies operate. Uh, so what's the solution? Well, what I argue in the book is that really we need to focus on increasing the scope of economic freedom that face individuals who are suffering around the world. and. As I wrote in my first book, After War, it's difficult or, or almost impossible to go around the world imposing economic freedom on people through military occupation. Where does that leave us? Well, one of the things I emphasize is that we can look inward. We can look domestically within the United States and say, what policies can we undertake that will benefit individuals abroad? And, and the conclusion I draw is that one of the key things we can do is removing barriers to trade, both in goods and services, but also in terms of the movement of people, migration. And opening those markets to people, whether it's in agriculture, whether it is in the movement of people to the United States, is, is the best way to, to alleviate suffering in the long term. 
Before we started recording, we were talking about uh, Simeon Jankoff and the the Doing Business Index that uh, have been has been produced for many years. How do these metrics sort of give us a picture of which countries are succeeding in developing, which aren't? Well, the idea behind the Doing Business Index is is let's come up with some metric for gauging how costly it is to gauge and engage in private initiative and entrepreneurial activity by number one having an idea, but more importantly acting on that idea and bringing it to life through the creation of a business and then closing of a business if, if uh, it fails. Uh, and there's other important indices as well. The Fraser Institute does, uh, provides the economic freedom of the world um, indice, which is quite important. And really what these indices are, are trying to get at is this idea of uh, there's entrepreneurial potential throughout the world, but in some societies we see people undertaking productive, positive sum interactions which benefit both them, but also society more broadly. But in many cases, in the poorest place in the world, we don't see that. And why is that the case? And really what these indices are trying to get at is, let's try to develop some metri metrics to understand the barriers to productive entrepreneurship in these countries. Because really the goal is not planning entrepreneurship, not creating development through some government agency, but rather creating a broad environment that allows private uh, individuals to both be alert to opportunities, but also exploit those opportunities which, which they can imagine. Government-led aid, uh, you say these the people in, in charge of these operations typically don't really understand very well the role of markets. Aren't they strongly incentivized not to understand that role or at least to minimize the, the impact that markets can have to promote well-being? Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, the, the irony is that the way that the current international humanitarian aid complex is set up is, is through a top-down bureaucracy. Uh, so you have these massive large-scale bureaucracies that then pass down initiatives and funding through a hierarchy. Sometimes it's contracted out to other bureaus or agencies or nonprofits. Uh, and, and really, the, the irony here is that the way that aid is carried out mimics central planning. So, so really, in some sense, when they pay lip service to markets, what they're trying to do is centrally plan markets. But markets are desirable precisely because no one has to centrally plan the outcome of markets. So there's this fundamental tension between advocates of markets and private initiative and efforts to centrally plan those through top-down large-scale bureaus. Christopher J. Coyne is author of Doing Bad by Doing Good. You can watch a full forum for the book at Cato.org.